So here in this book, which is the word of God, there is great comfort for the redeemed. And found in places such as 1 John 1.7, where we are told, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Which is followed up by another verse, which is equally, equally as comforting. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Saints, have you done this? Have you confessed with your mouth, believed with your heart that Jesus is Lord and then followed him in obedience and submitted to baptism? Well, if you're a member of this church, the answer is yes. And we have the word of God given to us. And Jesus is that word. And this is his word. And words have meaning. It's through words that our minds are caused to think. It's, it's through words, either spoken or read, that ideas are formulated. Concepts are grasped, and then actions are taken. And through these word-formulated, word-generated, word-driven thoughts, and then actions, character is made. And we are then conformed to something or someone but this then causes us to have at least one follow-up question. You see, words have meaning, and since we know that Jesus is the Word, and that He is God, and that His Word is faithful and true, since the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin, since in our obedience to the Lord, in confessing our sins, that our hearts have been purified, He's purified us from all unrighteousness, What's the deal with life? Because life can be hard. And very often the hardest part about life is just the dailiness of it. The day in, day out, same old, same old grind of life. And our chapter today deals with that trial. That character molding, character, character building means that the Lord uses to conform us into the image of his son. But we very often find the daily, dailiness of life very unfulfilling, hard, mundane, which, is, which then can cause us to do the illogical and sometimes even immoral. We quit. We quit our job, we quit our marriage, or we quit our church. However, because we are the redeemed, because we have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb, we are meant to understand life differently than others. God explained the dailiness of life, that character-building, flesh-killing dailiness of life, and even for the reason for it. He's done that in Daniel chapter 12, verse 10, where he says, Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. And Daniel, the man that God used to pen those words, he understood <clears throat> our chapter from today. The furnace of the daily walk with the Lord. 
You see, Daniel was a man who understood a thing or two concerning being purified. A man who understood a thing or two about the dailiness of life and living through adversity. He was a man who served his entire adult life as a counselor to pagan rulers in a land that he had been taken captive into as a young lad. He was more than likely around the age of 13 when the Babylonian army sacked the city in which he lived, more than likely killing all of his relatives and then castrating him and his friends before taking them back to Babylon to be trained as wise men. And this man, through the holy inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that we are to understand this purification of the Lord that we are to be wise and understand. Again, this is the word of God spoken to you in words which are meant then to affect you. They are given you to cause you to think, to cause you to ponder, cause you to repent, and then cause you to act. And again, the question that you should be asking is this. Since we have the truth of 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, if we have, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Why then is life so hard? Why does God do this? And even what does this question have to do with Genesis 40? With the content given to us in this chapter, because you're thinking this chapter is all about dreams being given, dreams being revealed, and dreams then coming to pass. What, has, what does this have to do with the blood of Christ cleansing us from all sin? Well, the answer to that question is found in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, where we're told that according to the law, almost all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You see, saints... God desires you to understand your life with him, your life in him, to understand and be wise. Almost all things were cleansed by blood. That verse from Hebrews 9 is speaking about the law of the old covenant, and in it, almost all things were cleansed by the shedding of the blood. But not all things. Sin could be cleansed in other ways, including the washing with water, anointing with oil, burning flour, giving money, or even the release of an animal into the wild. And understand this, that all of the cleansing of the Old Covenant, including the cleansing by blood, was only for unintentional sin, not intentional sin. And this is why the new covenant is better than the old. For the predestined, the elect, all sin is forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. But not all things are cleansed by the blood. To explain this truth, to better explain what is being shown to us in our text today, let me use another biblical truth that we all know, we all understand. God is our salvation. Amen? He freely gives us his salvation, right? And yet we are told that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. 
He has given us our text from today in order for us to think, to understand, and then to use that understanding, those thoughts, to have those words work in our mind and in our heart, to use these words to cause us to then act in order that we can live a Christian life with him, in order that we can do that which he has commanded us to do in James 4, 8. When he tells us, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Again, this was not written to the unsaved. He desires us to hear his words and then have them penetrate our heart and then cause us to change, to have change actually occur within us. Change such as told to us in 2 Corinthians 7.1. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. You see, Joseph has been taken down. Joseph was once a free man, an elevated man, a man who was favored and was of the chosen people of God, a man who was favored and the chosen son of the Father, and even a son of the Most High God. He was all those things. And then he was taken down. He was thrown down into a pit by his brothers. And then he was sold as livestock by them and taken down to Egypt, where he was re then resold and became the slave of a man that we know as Potiphar, a man who bought Joseph and who came to respect the abilities given to him, as told to us in Genesis 39, verses 3 and 4, where we're told, Now his master saw that Yahweh was with him, and how Yahweh caused all that he had, that all that he did to succeed in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended on him, and he appointed him overseer of his house, and all that he owned he gave to his hand. But Potiphar, he had this wife, who wasn't a nice person, who had some pretty bad personality traits. She was immoral, and she was vindictive, and she poured out both of those qualities out on Joseph when she tried to seduce him and then lied about him, which was the catalyst for our chapter today, a chapter that begins with a very seemingly innocent first verse. Now it happened after these things, the cupbearer and the baker, for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. In, in order for us to understand the reason for this chapter, we first need to figure out a couple things. One, who we're dealing with, where they're at, and when did this all occur. And to do this, we're going to start by reading verses 1 through 5. After... Now, after it happened, after these things, the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. And the captain of the bodyguard appointed Joseph an overseer over them, and he attended to them, and they were in confinement for some time. Then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt, who were confined in jail, both had a dream the same night, each man with his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. And so we know from these verses, these opening verses, who was there, 
who this chapter is concerning. The cupbearer and the baker. The where, that's given to us in verse 3, in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, in the jail that was attached to his house, which is exactly where Joseph was, in the jail that Joseph had been thrown into because of his high moral character by the same man who was in charge of the jail, Potiphar. The same man who placed all things into the hands of Joseph in his house because of his, of his immoral wife moved Joseph from his house to his work. And there we're told that he placed all things into his hands again. When Potiphar had come home from work that fateful night, that night that his wife made that charge against Joseph, saying that he had tried to rape her, we are told that his reaction to hearing that was that of what most husbands that actually care would have. He was furious. The word tells us, that his anger burned, so Joseph, master, put, took him and put him in the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was in the jail, verses 19 and 20, chapter 39. But the word never tells us who his anger burned against. You see, in that day and age, in that country, a slave, especially a Hebrew slave, if he did such a thing as that which Joseph was accused of doing, he would have been killed on the spot. Otherwise, the other household slaves would have been emboldened to do things just as, um, just as well. And this is what happened in the life of Joseph. The captain of the bodyguard, who he had been sold to according to Genesis 39, he cast him into prison, where he then is put in charge of over all things, just as he was in the house of Potiphar. So this is the where that our account takes place, in the prison that Joseph was at, where the cupbearer and the baker also found themselves in. When did this all occur, though? That we can't be certain of, but from the literary markers given to us in the original language, the now that is spoken of in verse 1, that it begins with, isn't a day or even a few weeks after Joseph gets thrown into jail. It's more like months, more likely years. Let that sink in. Before we move any further into the text, I want you to really stop and think about the facts of this man's life. The reason for this is that we are no different than Joseph. He was the beloved son of the Most High God. He was chosen, elected to be of the Father before the foundation of the world, just like we are. And the question that I need, that I want you to ask of yourself, I need to ask of myself, what would your countenance be in this situation? What would mine be? How would we be seen? How would our master have seen? Would, ma would our master see that God was with us? And for this reason, everything that we were put over flourished? Would our master actually see because we are his, that he is being blessed by the Lord because of us? Joseph was a young man. He was a smart man. He had everything going for him. In fact, we're specifically told in chapter 39 that he was beautiful in form, beautiful in appearance. This dude was the whole package, the whole enchilada. He was all that and a bag of chips. 
and he had been cast down into prison on the word of an evil, adulterous woman. And he's been there for a while. What would your countenance be in that situation? And here is the application that we are to make based off of this part of this chapter. How we live, how we view our job, our spouse, our economic situation, even our own personhood, it is all a reflection of how we view the God of our salvation. What our countenance is like in the job or occupation that we currently hold, that's a, count, that, that's a reflection of what we think of our Lord. Because we serve the same God as Joseph did. We have a lot more freedom than he did. And we are probably compensated at a much greater rate than he was. What's our countenance like on a daily basis? Are we grateful and thankful? Even joyful? Do we have an attitude of gratitude? Do we know and obey 1 Thessalonians 5, 15 through 18, where we're told that we should repay no one evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people, that we are to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. We know what his countenance was like because we know we have given verses 6 through 13. Now Joseph came to them in the morning and saw them, and behold, they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, saying, Why are your faces so sad? And they said to him, We have had a dream, and there is no one to interpret it. So Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Recount it to me, please. So the chief cupbearer recounted his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me, and on the vine there were three branches, as, and it was budding. Its blossoms came out, and the clusters produced ripe grapes. Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. And then Joseph said to him, This is an interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to the office, and you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. What was his countenance? Joseph cared. He was so affected, not by who he was or even where he was, but he was so affected by whose he was that his countenance was such that he cared about men that he should never have cared about. Those men weren't his peers. They were Egyptians of a much different class and sort than he was. Again, I want you to let this sink in. Let me ask you, are you so selfish, so self-consumed, that you never even notice other people? You never notice that person who sits by themselves alone, who seems sad? And do you notice, are you, do you actually then go and ask about that? Will you actually engage with them? 
Do you engage with other people? Other people surrounding you, so much so, not just, hey, how are you doing? But do you know enough about them to be able to ask them things about their life that matter to them? Joseph cared. He cared enough to get into the lives of other people. Again, these men weren't Christians. They weren't even Jews. They would have had nothing to do with Joseph outside of them being thrown in prison with him. He cared. But there's something else in these verses that the Lord desires us to think through. Words that are spoken that we are given to cause us to think through. There are two specific things I want us to think through concerning verses 6 through 13. The first concerns the dreams that these men had. The dreams that they had affected them enough that it caused them to con- they caused them concern because they couldn't figure out what they meant. And the reason for this, why it affected them so much, was that they were supernatural. God gave them these dreams. And you're wondering, well, how do you know that, David? Where are you getting this from? Because it doesn't say it in these verses. Well, I get this from Ezekiel 12:25 where the Lord says, For I, Yahweh, will speak, and whatever word I speak will be done. From Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My counsel will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass, I have formed it, surely I will do it. Both dreams from both men came to pass. In other words, what they dreamed happened. And because words have meaning, because words drive our thoughts, because we are affected by words, we need to consider the reality of the words that God has told us by those prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah. And this then begs the question, does God work in the lives of the non-elect? And that question, that question touches on that spiritual truth of predestination and election. Election and predestination, you can't deny them. These are biblical truths that are found within the Bible. But what those words mean, however, That's the thing that's hotly debated. All Christians will agree that God elects and predestines. But for those that have a high view of man, that use man as that litmus test for the love of God, they will say that God looks down the corridor of time and then elects predestined those that are going to choose him. This is how the doctrine of election and predestination happens according to them. According to them, God loves people all the same. According to them, he didn't know that Adam was going to sin. And he had to put in a plan of action to fix the problem of sin that he hadn't thought about before the creation of the world. He sends his son to die for everybody. Jesus pays the sin price for every living being who was ever created. And now all you have to do is make a wise choice. Choose God, and Viola, you're saved. According to them, 
that God granted dreams to the baker and to the cupbearer, that just proves that he loves everybody the same, that he treats everybody the same, that he woos everybody the same. But for those who hold to the doctrines of grace, they have an issue with that understanding of election and predestination. They hold that this is not the clear biblical teaching concerning the grace of God and how God works in this realm with people. We hold that God knew before the foundation of the world who he would choose to reconcile to himself. And we do this because of verses such as Ephesians 1, where we're told, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love by predestinating us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. And we know that not all people are saved or can be saved. Again, these are facts given to us by the word of God in John 1, 10 through 13. And we hold the truth of divine election and predestination happens outside and predates anything of man. And we do because of Romans 8, 10 through 13, where we're told not only this, but there was Rebekah also, that when she conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that the purpose of God according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because on him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I've loved, Esau I hated. And this is where we get a little bit squirmy. Because we're happy to say that God chooses to work a miracle in the lives of some people. He saves some people, the elect, the predestined. But we want to think that for the rest of humanity, we want to think that he just, well, basically just leaves the rest of people alone. We want to believe that the rest of the people in this reality, in this realm, that they are NPCs. If you don't know what an NPC is, an NPC is a non-player character built into a video game. They really don't matter. They are just basically a filler to make that life, that reality, more real to those people that really matter the ones that are playing, who are the chosen. God doesn't think of them. He didn't think of them when he created them, because if he did, and they weren't predestined to salvation, then they were predestined to hell. And this is that slippery slope that we don't want to go down, that we desire to shy away from, because that is an ugly theology that is called double predestination, at least to some. That God predestines some to salvation, and that he specifically created them for this reason, and that he creates and predestines some people for damnation. That's the definition of or double predestination. And if it is true, then logically, God can be accused of being the author of sin. 
If this is how predestination works, then the accusation then can be then leveled against God that he commands us to do something that he does not do. He commands us to love our neighbor as he himself does not. So what's the answer then? Were these dreams of these men from God or, or not? And if so, what then are we to make of the fact that God was willing to work in their lives enough to give them dreams, but not enough to bring them to faith in him? So we really have two questions that we're asking here. First, does God work in the lives of the non-elect? That's the first question. The second question then, if he does, why? Well, to the first question, the overwhelming biblical answer is yes. We know that he does. He works in the lives of the non-elect. We know this because of the truth concerning Pharaoh in the Exodus account, of God speaking to Balaam in Numbers 22, because of God calling that pagan king Cyrus to have the temple rebuilt, as told to us in Isaiah 44:28, when he says, It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and all my good pleasure he will complete. And perhaps the greatest evidence of God working in the lives of the non-elect is given to us in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So how then do we answer those charges against those that will tell us that what we believe concerning God is double predestination? Well, to answer that question, we have to go back to the beginning of Genesis, back to Genesis 1.1, and use even more confusing terms than double predestination. And all these terms are actually in the back of your, your handout that I've given you today. Those terms that we're going to talk about, I'm going to talk about now, is Armenian, infra, and supralapsarianism. I know, multisyllabic words, hard to pronounce, but easy to understand once you know what they mean. Because in the center of that main part of that term is the word lapse. And, in that, and that term equates to the fall or lapse of man. That's the meaning of the core part of that word, the lapsarian part. It's talking about the fall of man. And then the Armenian, the infant, and the supra, those terms speak to the win of predestination part of the salvation of men. Not the how part, but the win part. We know the how part. We know that people are only saved by the perfect sin offering of the Son of God in the propitiation of the sins of the elect of God. All the Christians agree on this. But when did it occur? The question at hand is sequence, the order in which God determined things to happen. And in many ways, this is just an exercise in words because we are fallen, finite, and created beings that can't truly understand the mind of God. But having said that, we can understand each other's minds. And we are commanded to know what has been provided to us by God in his word. And so this exercise, though in many ways is merely semantic, since ultimately these are issues that we are incapable of fully grasping. And it truly doesn't matter what order God decreed what to occur. What truly matters is that God created humanity. We know that. 
Humanity sins, we know that. And God has provided salvation through Jesus Christ, and we know that. But having said that, since we live in the realm of man, we deal with men who use words and have thoughts, and since we are the elect of God, we are going to be forced, we are forced to deal with this concept, to understand the main differences between how these verses are fleshed out. And so I'm going to go through these those terms quickly. First, the Armenian understanding of lapsarianism. An Armenian, they hold to this. They hold that Genesis 1-1 happened in this order, that God decreed the creation of the world and had foreknowledge of the fall. But God then decreed to send his son as savior for those who repent, believe, and persevere. And this decree provides means and to enable repentance and faith. His foreknowledge of which individuals repent and believe works with his decree to save those who believe, who do good works and persevere, and then to condemn those who do not. That's the order in, that, in which they see Genesis 1-1 as actually happening, which clearly does not predestine some men to hell, and then God cannot be charged with creating sin. And then the Reformed superlapsarianism. And supra means that his commands for salvation and damnation happened over and before the fall. That looks like this. Genesis 1.1 looks like this, according to that. God decrees to predestine the elect to eternal life, with Christ as their head, and to predestine the reprobate to damnation for their sins. Then God decrees to create the world. Then God decreed to permit man to fall. And he decrees to send his son and spirit to save the elect. And then finally, the reformed infralapsarianism after the fall. That looks like this. God decrees to create the world for his glory. God decreed to permit the fall. He decreed to elect certain persons, fallen people to salvation by grace in Christ, and the reprobate others to condemnation. He decreed to send Christ and the spirit to save the elect. I personally, I hold the infra as the order of operation. Why? Well, because the theologians and the descendants of Dort, they put it this way. They said, before the foundation of the world, by sheer grace, according to the free good pleasure of his will, God chose in Christ to salvation a definite number of particular people out of the entire human race which had fallen by its own fault and from its original innocence into sin and ruin. This is the only way that God is not the author of sin. And just because there is an order spoken of in every one of these views, we don't know how much time, if any, actually came about between them. In other words, just because God ordains the creation of man, permits the fall, then predestines his son to salvation for some, this doesn't mean that that could not have happened. This logical sequence could not have all happened in the exact same second for God. And at the same time, more importantly than logic and order, when dealing with God, there is something much bigger than logic and order. Something that is the thing that causes logic and order that we need to deal with. We need to look first and foremost at God and understand the attributes of God when we think about these things. 
the attributes, those attributes, as we learned last week in, in, at the conference, those attributes, those, those attributes are truly, they are not just things to describe God. They are the essence of God. They are what George May says is godness. Those are the things that we are talking about when we talk about attributes. What it is that God is. And they all predate creation and the fall. They are the essence of his being. The essence of the reason for creation. We know why God created. He created for his glory as told to us in in Isaiah 43.7. And again, in Romans 11:36, where we're told, From him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. He created all for his glory. That's why he created. You see, but there are some attributes of God, some elements of God, some essences of God that would not be seen, could not be revealed outside of creation happening. The angels and the heavenly beings were created before creation, but they didn't demonstrate or reflect the true magnificence of God's glory fully. So he created, and creation demonstrated his glory. It illuminated his glory fuller but not to the fullest. There were still some essences, some attributes, some qualities of God that were still not reflected to the utmost, even with the creation of humanity. And for that to happen, man had to lapse. Man had to fall. All of God's attributes, all of his essences, all of his godness, they all predate the fall, predate creation. Attributes such as his eternal, holy, and wonderful wrath that is tied to and equal with his holy justice. Alongside of those, his holy love and his holy mercy and his holy grace, which are all demonstrated into the greatest way as seen as being the most glorious through the redemption of some lapsed men. In order that the glory of God and the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ could be most brilliantly displayed, fallen man had to be saved. And for the glory of God in the wrath of the Father and of the Son to be most brilliantly displayed, fallen man had to be punished. And for the glory of God is demonstrated in love that is the Father, that is the Son, and that is the Spirit. For those essence, those attributes to be most brilliantly displayed, mankind had to be created. Having the love of God poured into him and being created in the image of God, being made part of his family, being given the free will choice to choose not to be part of the family of God to choose not to be good, which is what man did, to the glory of God. For the glory of God, the love of God, the majesty of his holiness to be best displayed through fallen man. This had to happen. God's love is shown in common grace on all mankind. 
But for the elect, those that he has chosen to redeem, those that he has poured out his love, the love of his Son and the Spirit onto, those that because of his radiant glory being made manifest in their heart, they then choose in that love, and they choose God. And since God is holy, and for all of his holiness to be best displayed for his glory, God must then work all things for the good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And this then answers the second question concerning the why of God giving those dreams to those non-elect men. God giving dreams to men who, he may, who may or may not know him. He did that in order that that man who does know him, who does love him, is given the opportunity to act in accordance with his will for his glory, to answer the answer to the second part of that question of God working in the lives of the non-elect is truly Romans 8, 28. And we are to know this. That's why Paul begins that verse in Romans, and we know. We are to know that God does work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, which is to say at least one level at least at one level, that we are the reason that he works in the lives of the non-elect. Not because we're special, but because he is. But again, because words have meaning. Because he's special and we are in him, that makes us special. And Joseph knew this to be true. He was so confident in God, so confident in the goodness of God, so confident in the interpretation of these dreams that God gave these men that he had illuminated for them. That we're given verses 14 and 15. And then remember, saints, this is the context that we're talking about. He has been a prisoner in jail, seemingly forgotten, for months, maybe years. And he's still so confident in his Lord. We're given verses 14 and 15. He says, Only remember me when it goes well with you, and please show loving kindness by remembering me to Pharaoh and getting me out of this house, for I was in fact stolen from the, hand, for the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing that I should have been put in the pit. In these two verses, we see that Joseph never doubted for a minute that what he told that man would come to pass was going to happen. And again, this is the grace of God, but it's not just a grace that's given just to Joseph. We too are given this same grace. Do you not realize I confidently, consistently, stand up here and tell you things that I am 100% certain about. Things such as Romans, those Romans 8 verses, such as there is nothing in life or death or anywhere that can ever separate us from the love of Christ and of God and Jesus Christ. And I'm no different than you in this. You're no different than me in this. I can, you can, with just as much certainty, Tell people truth with absolute confidence. 
And then finally in these verses, we are finally given a glimpse into the heart and the mind of this saint who has endured so much. Though he's not happy in his circumstances, he'd like to be moved to a different location, a better situation. He wasn't happy, and yet at the same time, he was joyful. There's the difference in life. Happiness all depends on happenings. Joy is defined and ruled by Jesus. You can be joyous and unhappy at the same time. Joseph knew that if he could be free, he desired to be free, and he made this known. And that's all he did, though. He never allowed his heart to run away with his emotions and murder those people around him. He never talked trash about Potiphar's wife or about Potiphar, no matter what he knew about them. And then the chief baker, who's been watching, listening to all this happen, hears that good report. He's listening, and he's like, um, I got a dream too. Verses 16 through 19. And then the chief baker saw that the interpretation, he interpreted favorably. So he just said to Joseph, I also saw a dream, and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head. And by the way, this proves that white bread really is of the devil. Um, so, and in the top basket, there were some of all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, and the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Then Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days, and when three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head off of you and will hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh off of you. Thus it happened on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up his head on the chief cupbearer and the head of his baker, and he restored the chief cupbearer to his office, and he put the um, cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted them. I just say, ouch. I mean, because this isn't what he was expecting. This was not what he wanted to hear. He wanted to hear a good report like the cupbearer got. And instead, he was told the truth. And once again, we're given this as a lesson of how we are to walk with the Lord. Remember, Joseph wanted out of this place. He wanted to be set free. And he understood that these men, they might be the key to that happening. And instead of playing to that strength, instead of giving the baker a good report, just trying to gain favor with him, instead of just telling him a partial truth or maybe just a half-truth to make it easier for him to understand it, he tells this man the whole truth, the whole ugly truth. And then we're given the outcome of this, of this day. Again, verses 20 through 22. Thus it happened on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the, keep, the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his office, and he put the cup in his Pharaoh's hands. But he hanged the chief cupbaker, the chief baker, just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yep. Just like he said, one was elevated, and the other, well, I guess the other was elevated too, but much in a much different and more painful way. And then we're given verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And it would be really easy for us to say, that was not the hand of God in the life of Joseph. It's just one of those things. You know, things happened. Bad luck happened. He had bad juju. 
people. You know. You can't trust them. It's just people. But saints, God is wanting us to realize truth. There is no such thing as bad luck for the redeemed. All things work together for our good. You're going to get tired, and you may even get sick of me quoting Romans 8.28 to you, but I want you to understand the meaning of it, the depths of that verse. Even hard things, even continually hard things, even the daily drudgery of life. God desires us to see that when we are in him, that there really are no bad days. They're all God days. And the forgetting of Joseph by the cupbearer happened for a reason. And the reason is this. You see, God had given a dream to Joseph as well. In fact, he gave them two dreams, dreams that Joseph understood the meaning of. He didn't need anyone to interpret his dreams. Do you remember the dreams given to Joseph? Just to refresh our mind on what those dreams were so you understand why this happened. Let me read to you those dreams again. Genesis 37. Then Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers. So they hated him even more, and he said to them, Please listen to this dream which I've had. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf rose up and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Are you really going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he still had another dream and recounted it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've had another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were all bowing down to me. And he recounted it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers really come to bow ourselves down before to you on the ground? Joseph understood those dreams, but he couldn't understand the context of those dreams. He must have thought when they were given to him. He must have imagined those dreams in this way. They were going to be fulfilled all in Canaan with his family all around him. As he worked with his family, as he worked for his father, that was more than likely how Joseph saw these dreams being fulfilled. And for Joseph to walk in the reality of the dreams that would happen, those dreams had to be purified by the betrayal and being sold as a slave. And then the years of day in and day out, obedience and contentment in the life that he was giving, the life that was less than fulfilling. Saints, has God given you a dream? Do you not understand that just like Joseph, that you may not truly understand the dream that he has given you? You may have dreamed of riches or of pleasures or of the contentment of having a loving family surround you. But to be able to be trained by the discipline of the Lord to have our dreams purified, we have to do as Joseph did. There's only one way that he was able to accomplish this to live like this, he beheld the beauty of the Lord our God and found his rest in him. 
He had to come to know God when his weary heart and weary soul was weary. It was then that he found his purpose. It is then that he found his fulfillment. Not in this world or this or the jobs or the families in this world, but in God. He trusted in the Lord as evidenced by his unwavering trust in the truth of God. And he allowed the Lord to use the situations and the people around him to conform him more into the image of his son, which is why, again, we must really grasp Romans 8.28. This is the same lesson that is the Lord is teaching us, each of us. And this is the only way that we will be able to live in a similar manner as Joseph. We must decide. Again, those words, the whole thought thing about words being made and the decisions. We must decide. We must choose today who we will serve. Ourselves or the Lord. Because he has given us the dream. He has given us the greatest gift in his son. And he has himself the son he has given himself to us and the spirit has given himself to us as well in dwelling in dwelling us and illuminating the word for us and this is the reason not only that we get to choose this day who we will serve but this is the reason why we can choose and this is the reason why someday we will choose but it's when we decide when we choose to see the things and the situations in this world that are happening in this world around us, when we get to and we decide then to see that as the hand of God, the gift of God to us in our life, to bring us more into conformity of himself, it will be then at that moment that we will then be able to see that the life that we've been given now is that a true and abundant life that we've been promised. And it's then and only then that we will realize that the dreams that he has given to us, those dreams that he gave us so long ago, they're being fulfilled in Egypt. We dreamed of riches He's given us himself. He's given us his word. We dreamed of pleasure and he's given us his spirit and the love of the saints. And we dreamed of the fulfillment of, of having a family, a loving family. And he's given us his body. Saints, when you realize that the dreams that the Lord has given you, those desires that he's given you, that they may not be the way that you think that they're going to work out because it wasn't for the life of Joseph. When we finally realize that the Lord is being faithful and true to his word and fulfilling those dreams in our life here and now, it's when we understand and when we grasp Romans 8.28 that we will finally understand He is the fulfilling of our dreams. And it's then that just like with Joseph, 
that we will live joyfully in Him. Saints, choose today. He's giving you His Spirit, which has regenerated your heart, which has made you able to choose Him. Choose today who you will serve. And in that choosing, you will truly begin to understand Romans 8.28. Let's pray.